The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. All right, well, that's a hell of a disclaimer, but it's kind of required, so you'll get over it. Anyways, welcome to the first episode of Anchor Points. Just want to give a shout out to you guys who've been following us on social media and uh, the huge and overwhelming amount of support and encouragement to get this thing off the ground. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, There'll be more episodes to come, but for this first one, we have Nelda St. Clair. Uh, She is a pioneer in the field when it comes to mental health awareness and uh, started a lot of programs and had a huge deal and a huge part in creating the SISM program as we know it. It's kind of a long episode and uh, it's it's sobering, I'm not going to lie, but I think it's important that we get this on the table for the first episode, uh, especially coming into the season. Uh, It's going to be a busy one. I know that uh, there's some fires popping up in Alaska and uh, Region 3 already. So let's see what the season holds. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to Anchor Point. How's it going? It's good. Good? Welcome to Anchor Point. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Cheers. Cheers. Shout out to Coors Banquet. Thanks for supporting the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Absolutely. It's a worthy cause, and it's always been my beer of choice. See, there we go. Things happen to just work out like that. Sometimes they do. Natural progressions of things. Absolutely. Speaking of natural progressions, welcome to another episode of Anchor Point. Today, you've probably heard of her. This is our inaugural inaugural episode. We have Nelda St. Clair, and if you've heard of SISM, then you definitely know who Nelda St. Clair is. Care to elaborate? It's been an honor to be a part of the National Critical Incident Stress Management Program Mm -hmm. and to pioneer it uh, starting in about 2003 with the help of a lot of really good people. That's awesome. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Nelda here is the sole person responsible for this pioneering of SISM and mental health awareness in wildland fire. I'm maybe not the sole person, but in it's 2000 a huge in, influence. Yeah, but it, it, in, yes, but in 2003 we realized that we needed something and so we partnered with BLM law enforcement who had a pretty robust SISM program then. Mm-hmm. And they showed us the way, and they in- introduced us to their instructors and their clinicians, and they learned. we learned from them. Nice. And the hope was that we would work together, but we soon parted ways, and it was because people retired or took other jobs, and it's something we see in the Critical Incident Stress Management Program now, is when people leave that were passionate, they're not really replaced. So we got we cut our teeth with law enforcement, and then we were able 
through the assistance of the Great Basin Coordinating Group to build on a program that has evolved into what you see today. That's pretty impressive. I, I, I just want to say thank you for everything that you've been doing for us over the years, but now you're retired and you've moved on to something a little bit bigger and better, which we're going to get to a little bit later. But for a quick history, let's get your history. I want to hear how you got into fire and your reasoning and your experiences behind SISM, everything. Just let it all out. I want to hear the story, and I bet everybody on here is going to want to hear your story as well. I was born in fire. I was born on a ranger station in Wyoming. My dad was a firefighter. Mm-hmm. My dad was part of what was known as the Bighorn IR crew, which is now the Wyoming Interagency Hotshots. It's a beautiful country up there. Yeah, it's I'm, one of the most memorable memorable fires I've ever been on was the Arden Fire. Yeah, up I, gr- there. I grew up outside of Cody, Wyoming, nice. on the Sunlight and Crandall Ranger stations. I was born in Southern Wyoming, um, in encampment, mm-hmm. and then we moved back home to Cody, which was home to my mom and dad where he worked for the Forest Service until he retired and worked in fire. And I always wanted to get a degree in forestry, and he was really against it. Mm -hmm. Thought I shouldn't work for the government, had different ideas. And this was in 1979. So when I graduated from high school, what I really wanted was a makeover. A makeover? Kind of redefine your person? Merle Norman makeup in Billings, Montana. Because in Cody, you know, or at the ranger station, we didn't really have that. Mm-hmm. So they had a graduation party for me. And I got a buck knife, a tent, a pair of whites, and a sleeping bag. <laughs> There's only one direction you're going to be heading from there. And <laughs> I asked my mom and dad, what am I supposed to do with these things? Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to use them on your job. And I said, well, I don't have a job. And they said, well, actually you do. You have a job on the Medicine Bow National Forest and you start tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a long ways from here. And they said, you better start driving. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, so I went. So they kind of voluntold you to. So at 18, <laughs> I went. That's awesome. And I started on the Medicine Bow. Um, actually, um, as an engineering technician Mm -hmm. and then went to the timber stand improvement crew in the fall uh, to make extra money. But they sent us to fire school and we did that. And then I stayed with them for a couple of years and the forest service wasn't really working out for me. Mm -hmm. We were on a fire and they were going to lose it. And a BLM Unimog showed up, and the fire the back then the fire boss wanted to keep everybody on the road until the district ranger could get there to order an air tanker, mm-hmm. because only the ranger could order an air tanker, but he was three hours away. And the BLM crew came in and said, we can catch this right now. And they said, no, you have to stay on the road. And they said, well, in no uncertain terms, with an F, we're going to, we're going to fight your fire. (laughs) And they did this great hose lay and cut some line, picked it up. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So in 1982, I applied for a job with the BLM in Rollins, Wyoming. And I became the Unimog operator. 
Oh, hell yeah. That's awesome. And um, was the first female Unimog operator. And believe me, I don't place anything that I've done in my career on gender. It's all on capability and skill. Absolutely. FMO tried to, took me out on the four-wheel drive course and tried to scare me. Driving up and down over he tried hills. To scare you? Yeah, driving on steep slopes, doing different things. Well, I grew up. You grew up on a ranch. I grew up on a ranger station. Yeah. I, I grew up. A ranger station, really. I grew up um, in the Beartooth Mountains where it was steep. Yeah, this is nothing new to And you. the FMO was from Bakersfield. And when we got back to the station, he was the one scared. It wasn't me. And it blew his mind. So I became the Unimog operator and did that for a few years. That was probably the best job I ever had. Yeah. There's and, nothing like it. Yeah. So I moved on and uh, I went to uh, Lander, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Back then, you were called a station manager. Okay. And did that. It was, which is the equivalent to a FOS. Like a FOS. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to Yeah, it's equivalent it to a FOS. And I love that. Um, it was outside of Fort Washakie, Wyoming. Had a great time. And then from there, just kind of moved around. The 80s were just, for me, they were great firefighting years. They were incredible firefighting years. It's probably a lot more cowboy back then. It was great. <laughs> you probably do so much more. It was, it was good. Yeah. But we were safe. I mean, we did things we probably shouldn't have, but it was good. And it was, there were times I, I just wouldn't trade for anything. I realized I needed a permanent job, so I started to apply outside of Wyoming, and I got a job with the Park Service in the Everglades, uh, Big Cypress. Big Cypress? Yeah. And I went down there, um, learned a lot, and while I was down there, I was offered my first permanent job on the Arizona Strip, working for BLM. Nice. As the center manager. I didn't know anything about dispatch, but I knew about leadership. I knew about firefighting, and I knew I could make a decision. And I knew that working in dispatch required all that. Oh, yeah. You need, well, if you're working in dispatch, you need pretty much a knowledge of everything right. that's going on. And, and it, was, it was an opportunity, and I, I got a permanent full-time job. Nice. My parents weren't very happy because I had to borrow money to get back out west because while I was in the Everglades, I took scuba lessons, windsurfing lessons. The, the um, seasonal you know, winters. Spent winters, <laughs> you know, spent every dime I, I made in the Keys. But it was good. And I realized dispatch wasn't for me, uh, but I was very grateful. Too busy? Like sitting in no, there, like too busy of a personality? Uh, no, I still needed to fight fire. Just needed to get out there huh, in the field. Well, I was in St. George, Utah, and this was the 80s. Well, and it was probably a hell of a lot smaller back then. It was hard to find a place for a single woman yeah. to live. Um, but I got along with everybody, but I, my fire, I, I wasn't done with fire. And so I moved to Albuquerque as the assistant state FMO, um, got married to the, I'm sorry, I was the assistant district FMO at Albuquerque, and I got married to uh, Carl St. Clair, the love of my life. Mm -hmm. um, he fought fire for a very long time. He was about 10 years older than me, and BLM accommodated a move, and he left from being the assistant state FMO for Arizona to being assistant state FMO for New Mexico so that we could be together. Mm -hmm. And I was 27, and we'd been married for three months. And he was killed in a car wreck by a drunk driver coming home from the Yellowstone fires. He didn't die right away. 
I was about two weeks in the hospital at University of New Mexico Medical Center, and they finally um, shut life support off. And this was during 1988 when the Yellowstone fires were going on. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was incredibly devastating. It's the love of your life, yeah. It, I mean, I, it, it changed everything that I was. So I went home to Wyoming to be with my mom and dad. And about three days after we got home, their place burned in the Clover Mist fire. And this was their retirement home that my dad had built shortly after he retired from the Forest Service near Crandall. Yeah. And the entire Ranger District burned. So it wasn't so much the loss of the home, it was the loss of the land, and it was the loss of my husband. So one after another, back and back. Yeah. And the only way I survived it was through what we didn't know back then was peer support mm-hmm. and SISM. There were so many people that came and helped me because I didn't think I could go on. I didn't want to go on. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine what life would look like. But through that support, I learned that when something bad happened to somebody, to be there and to support them so that they could go on. And I also learned that all the good things that my husband had he left with me, and that was in taking care of people. And he was hardcore, mm-hmm. but he believed in taking care of people. You got to take care of your people yeah. and take care of your friends, right. your, your everybody. Exactly. And so I decided for me it was time to just do a reset. And I was young. I had a lot going on. And I needed to do something completely different. And I took a downgrade and became the helitech manager at Elko. Good old Elko, yes. And Worked with those guys a lot. Um, it was one of the best things I ever did, even though I took a downgrade and I left my home. In, I was back in Phoenix then, mm-hmm. and I went to Elko when it was the mining times, and it took about six months to have a house built. But I had a beautiful home on a few acres that I actually bought from Shauna Lagarza's parents. <laughs> Shauna? And I, I hired Shauna. You, you hired Shauna? I hired Shauna Lagarza. So for those of you that don't know Shauna, could you explain what Shauna does? Because now she's the, way high up. Shauna's the fire director for the Forest Service. Yeah. And when she's I hired Shauna, she was a ranch girl. She was 18, just out of high school. And I hired her to be on an engine outside of Elko. And we've remained friends over the years, and I'm, I'm very proud of her accomplishments. And she's gone through some very similar things in her life mm-hmm. that I went through. Oh, yeah. So... I was very happy to go back to just fighting fire, even though I wasn't in the Southwest where I wanted to be. Is that where your heart is, is the Southwest? Nah, it, it's everywhere now. Everywhere. But I did a lot of healing, and I learned a lot when I worked in those years in Elko. And I think because I was from Wyoming, um, when I showed up on a fire and would take my helmet off, and ranchers would see blonde hair. <laughs> kind they, of surprising to them. They were surprised, but my family were all ranchers. And I cared about them, and I cared about the land, and I wasn't a women's liver, and I wasn't any of that. Mm-hmm. And so I continued on, and I was on teams. I worked my way up just through fire quals. And, um, what did you was, top out as? If, what was like your highest qual? Um, I was a training operations section chief. Nice. And then I had a baby 
BLM wasn't really supportive of time off in those years. Times have certainly changed. They've changed for sure. Quite considerably. Which is a good thing. Yeah. And um, so I resigned for a couple years, which was the best thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. And glad Understandably I, so. Glad I, glad I did that. And I returned a couple years later, thanks to Kevin Hall, and went into Western Great Basin Coordination Center in 1993. And from there, um, my career started again. And I went through Montana BLM. Um, I did a, I did some time as the fire management officer in Butte, Montana. Before I left Elko, I was actually the assistant FMO. Back then they called in them. Elko? Yeah, they called them fire control officers. Huh. I did air attack, air support, division stuff on teams. So you've I done like that. pretty much the gambit of everything out there from bottom all the way to the top quite in a, fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite a, quite a bit of it. Operationally speaking. Operationally, and that's, and that's what I wanted to do, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And then in 1998... Um, I still wanted to continue doing that. And back then, you didn't um, really apply to jobs and get them. Sometimes you were told you had to go do jobs. And I was told I had to go be the center manager at Western Great Basin Coordination Center in Reno. Yeah. And I didn't really want to do it. And I told him I'd do it for two years. And 14 years later, I was still there. And there you are. 14 years later. It was one of the best jobs I ever had because we fought fire. We got it on. Yeah. Um, we well, were kind of known as a rogue gack. The rogue gack? Yeah. Because so that- I hired um, fire people <laughs> without <laughs> dispatch calls necessarily. So like you I'd, have a bunch of I would hire a hot jumpers, shot. hot shots. Yeah. I would hire them to run the desks because I said, if you can show leadership and make a decision then you can do this job and then it's going to bring credibility and we can make the best decisions for the fire line. Mm-hmm. That does not take away by any means the dispatchers that didn't have fire experience that worked there, that worked their hearts out and did the best job they could. Um, very much respect for them too. But that was, that was just kind of my style was running an operational gag and being hands-on. Yeah. And I believe that the, pre- the prepositioning that we did um, the decisions we made, because we knew the land, we, we knew what was going on. I believe we saved acres in the Western Great Basin when that went on. So for you guys that don't know, the GAC is basically responsible for coordination of everything. Pretty set, much everything. We set priorities. Yeah. We set priorities for fires. We provide, the GAC is customer service. And if there's a GAC that's not about customer service, then they're not a GAC. It's a geographic area coordination center. That time it was split in the Great Basin between Eastern Great Basin and Western Great Basin. No, there was Reno, and then there was Salt, Salt Lake. Lake. Yeah, and, and now it's consolidated. And now it's consolidated. But um, we were uniquely different for many reasons. But we were an operational coordination center, and our goal was to do the best we could for the fire line and for the firefighter, and that's what we did. Which must have been a very tall order because when it was a unified GAC, when it was just one, uh, operations were pretty much ran out of Reno. That's a lot of land you're covering. And that's all of Region 4, correct? So no, Salt Lake had Eastern Great Basin. Or Eastern Great Basin. Yeah, we had Nevada now it's... and a little piece of California. But in those years, there were a lot of fires in Nevada. 
and it was just culturally, it was very different. Um, and that's when I learned about critical incident stress management was while I was at Western Great Basin. Uh, it's about 2003. We saw a lot of death. We saw a lot of air tanker crashes. We saw a lot of burnovers. Yeah. We saw a lot of fatalities over the years in the Great Basin and particularly in Nevada. And I, I remember, would, was, uh, yeah, I remember that was, oh, I want to say 2010, I want to say. Was that 2010 or 2011? No, the tanker crash. Which one? I forget what the contractor was, but it was out in eastern Nevada. It wasn't. It, it was a seat crash, and then there was in 2012 the heavy as well. Yeah, in 2012 we lost Tanker 11. Tanker 11, yeah. Out in Ely. Prior to that, we'd lost Tanker 130 with Steve Wass, Hawkinson Powers. Mm-hmm. And I had grown up with Hawkinson Powers. My dad worked with Hawkinson Powers. My mom was from Grable. Some of those were hard to take. Hawkinson Powers was a helicopter contractor when I was hell attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, took those very personally. But we'd had a number of... I mean, these are your friends. Yeah, yeah. and we'd had a number of air tanker crashes. Um, you know, we had Tanker 09. We lost them at Stead in 2009. 2009. Yeah. And uh, seat crashes... We had other fatalities. We also had people that had been exposed to human suffering. Usually um, traumatic events. Traumatic right? events. And we would get these re- requests for CISM. And I'd get out the yellow pages. And I didn't know what that was. It was kind of unheard of back then, though. Like, it, 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 it was, but yeah. it, was, it was an attempt to try to help people. And so what we were doing was we were sending in Dr. Suit, who had... No connection with wildland fire. They didn't know our business. They didn't know our culture. Exactly. And while well intentioned, they didn't understand our business. And so it was almost exhausting to explain what a fire shelter was. And I had actually heard clinicians say, Well, why is this different than your other shelter deployments? They just didn't understand. Yeah. And so, in some ways, they haven't been exposed to it. So they're not going to have like a, a. a concept of they, they, what how, it how is. could they? They could, yeah. And it's completely foreign. Well, well intentioned, they did more harm than good. And that goes all the way back to South Canyon. There's stories of Dr. Suit that showed up there, and they were so frustrated that they got drunk in the bar and charged, put their whole bar tab on his room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Right. Well, right. That's, how, that's how firefighters And so operate, that's though. when we decided you know. we need to do better. Mm-hmm. And so we connected with a guy named Jack Harris and started doing training. And we recognized that we needed to train peers, peer supporters, people with mutual respect. People that had people had walked the walk done it. That weren't your next person over. Yeah. But the hot shot who understood what a hot shot did, the hell attack who understood what a hell attack person did, the dispatcher who understood what dispatch did. And we recognized the importance of having a mental health professional, because certainly we weren't that, along with us. Mm-hmm. And we started out, and it became um, 
almost creed. There wasn't support from it from management then, so we were under the radar. If something happened, we just almost. went on our own, and we helped people. Did and you guys like do this on your own time? Like sometimes, sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes no. There was ways around it. Yeah. But and you guys are that's that's the thing though is like back then when this was getting started, you guys were doing this pretty much on your own volition. You recognized the need for support. We were we were in and we were out and nobody really knew we were there. But because it was effective, we started getting so much so many requests we couldn't sustain our capability. Mm-hmm. So we had to come out from under the radar. And we knew there were risks with that, and we need, knew we needed to make it a formalized program yeah, with a standard of care and establish boundaries of competence and tell managers, hey, this is what we've been doing. And we know it's effective because we've helped people. They've told us we've helped them. And every year, we see the same people we help show up in our citizen classes because they want to go out and be peer supporters as well. So that validated what we were doing. Absolutely. And from there, the Great Basin model started to become a national model. And it evolved. There are some programs that maybe didn't have the respect for the professionalism and operated outside of the boundaries we were taught to do. And when you do that, you can cause psychological harm. Our uh, motto was always... Cause no harm. It's like never the Hippocratic oath. First, exactly. Yeah. Never cause harm. And so we were strict as far as who we took and the clinicians we used. And we insisted on clinicians. And we made sure that whatever we did, we did the best we could. And after a few years, we had over about 700 people trained in the nation not everybody went, not everybody was suited for it, which was fine, but yeah. they learned by it. And then in 2015, I became the National Assistant Coordinator for the BLM. And that's a huge achievement. It we, was, we need this. I was, very, I was very honored. None of the other agencies have a dedi- had a dedicated person, and so I helped them as best I could. Mm-hmm. Sometimes politically... That caused a rub. Probably ruffled some feathers. A lot of the time. A lot of feathers. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. But the whole thing was, it's about the people on the ground. It's about helping people. And it's about helping people to move on. And the job is to listen, assess, and refer. We have a, a term we use. It's called a psychopast. A psychopast. Psychopast. Psychopath. A psychopast. And that's the person who gets a little bit of training and goes in, thinks they know everything. That's your second year rookie. Yeah. (laughs) Snooky. Snooky. (laughs) And sometimes they drown in a sea of good intentions. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't help them and that doesn't help the person. No, it doesn't. The thing that I learned and that I'll never, that will always stay with me, when you let ego and pride get in the way, you're not a service to anybody. You're a hindrance. But you're not a service to yourself or your people who need help. Yeah. 
So lay down your ego and pride. When people are in trauma and they're in crisis, there's huge emotion. It's Mm -hmm. a difficult time. And you have to let your ego and pride stay aside and try to stay out of the politics and try to do what you're trained to do and do the right thing for the people. And that was a huge challenge. I could imagine. Because one, you have to be careful i'm assuming you that you'd have to be very careful with, with what you're doing out there two you can't operate outside of your scope of practice three you have to be hugely empath- empathetic as well because these guys that have seen whatever traumatic event they've seen are going through some big deal emotional things right and you have to be respectful absolutely and um we had a code of ethics we weren't associated with any investigation. We didn't take notes. Thank you for saying that. And everything we did was confidential. That's perfect. And I'm glad that you clarified that because I've been a part of SISM before. I've had uh, SISM debriefs before. I've had like four of them. And a lot of times the firefighter out there that's going through SISM is very reluctant to say something to the SISM team because they think that they're being investigated. And oftentimes they are. And we have to make that clarification that um, we're not associated with that. I have a lot of appreciation for the um, facilitated learning analysis process Mm -hmm. rather than um, the serious accident investigation process. Because in FLA... It's more of a conversation, and you can be part of a group when you tell your story, and it causes less anxiety. I've seen, ang- I've seen investigations create so much anxiety for people that have gone through a critical incident. They're being investigated. They're afraid. They're worried for their jobs. Mm-hmm. And s- sometimes it comes down to the, as, as simple as, how do you frame the question so people don't feel defensive? We're not in this for a witch hunt. Whether we're investigating or whether we're CISM, crisis intervention, we're there to make sure that we can learn from it and take care of our people. We share that common goal. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice when we can work together and coordinate. Do you want CISM to go first so that people are in a better place to tell their story? Or do we want investigation to go first and then we can pick up and maybe do some teaching and reintroduction, reentry, and bring them out, and you know, set them up so that they can move on. Oh yeah, but it's got to be hard as well. Like the hardest part for me with what happened with a couple of my SISM teams is actually re-walking that scene and asking. So I can't really go into too much detail because of conflict of interest stuff, but the hardest thing that I've ever had to do was ask a crew to perform a task where which they previously saw that task become catastrophic. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be as vague as possible here. Sure. So, you know, but and it's hard to rewalk those steps. But you shouldn't have to rewalk them. That's not what a good debrief is about. If you look at the negative research on SISM, a lot of it is asking people to relive a nightmare. Oh, yeah. 
And that's not how a debrief is run. A debrief is, is a debrief is about thought. It's about reaction. It's about teaching. It's about normalizing. It's about reentry, and it's about trying to reorganize the files in your brain and making sure that you've got follow-up resources. If anybody's ever asked you to rewalk something that you've been through, then they haven't gone through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation's process, which is our standard of care. So let me let me clarify that. That was the investigative, investigative okay. process. The SISM team came after that event. Understand. So, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. And 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 that. and that's where it's very uh, that's that's where it's important to coordinate, because we're not a, we're not an operational review, mm-hmm. which is a challenge because we're all ops people, and so sometimes when people are talking, it's easy to go. But hold on, hold on, <laughs> pump the brakes. But that's not what it's about, mm-hmm. and that's where it's a balance because if you've been asked by investigation which is their job to have you rewalk those steps. It is. Then perhaps it's appropriate to have CISN come in afterwards or crisis intervention so that we can do a better job of maybe some cognitive reframing, some teaching, talking about symptoms and reactions, mm-hmm. and then reentry to try to get you past those difficult questions that happen during investigation, yeah. if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. So I'm glad you clarified the actual steps of how this process goes down because when I went through it, it was, I was very apprehensive about it. And I, I guarantee you that all of the crew members that I, were, I was with went through the same exact mentality. Of course. Of course. But in retrospect, it all makes sense. I've seen investigations. We have, a, we, we have something called... Um, Secondary injury. Mm-hmm. And sometimes secondary injury can be more debilitating or affect you more than the primary injury. So the primary injury is the incident that happened. Yeah. The secondary injury can come from how you're treated afterwards, how you're treated by investigation, poorly or no um, crisis intervention that's poorly you know executed and that could cause secondary injury and sometimes secondary injury can be more um it it, it can cause more damage than the primary injury which was the incident itself gotcha and so that's where we've made huge success in trying to coordinate with investigation to try to relieve some of that anxiety. And that's hugely important for, especially if that's anybody that's gone through a schism or a traumatic event, just keep in mind that we have resources out there. We have help and we have plans in place to help you cope with it. And we'll, and, 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 and we'll help you find those resources in places like Nevada. It's really hard to find a mental health professional Oh, yeah. And so through my business now and through the Wildland Fire Foundation um, and through things that we did when I was still with BLM, we would handpick mental health professionals that would either go to you or you could call on the phone or you could go to them. And we vetted them 
so that they understood trauma. Um, EAP is a great resource. It's excellent, especially in areas that are with big population bases. Mm-hmm. Like R5, per se. Phoenix, maybe LA. Um, areas with large population bases, but we know that there's not a lot with EAP in Battle Mountain or Galena, Alaska, or Alturas, California. And when you go limited resources, and when you go to EAP, oftentimes you'll get a drug and alcohol counselor, domestic financial problem solver, helper, and we want somebody that specializes in trauma, and that doesn't take anything away from EAP, but that's the kind of follow up care that we need. And one of the biggest challenges I had was leaving an area, saying, "I mean, say, well, what do we do now? We'll call EAP." It wasn't an option. And so now we've got a pretty robust referral service process where if somebody needs something additional, we'll do the best we can to refer them to a trauma clinician mm-hmm. that can help them. And there's a lot of good tools and resources out there to do just that. Our challenge is in our remote areas that we work in, but we're trying to work around that. And that's the thing, though, is like <clears throat> it's important I'm glad you're bringing all of this up because with the coming fire season, it hasn't quite started yet. I mean, it's starting a little bit here and there, maybe in R3 and a little bit in Alaska, but it's coming. It's important that you take advantage of these resources because mental health is becoming a vastly growing topic, and it's very important to people in our profession. What's your views on that? 100%. One of the things that has frustrated me over the years, and then if you look at critical incident stress management, everybody thinks SISM is just peer support showing up and doing a SISM. But it's so far beyond that. Well, it's not an ongoing process. And one of the, the most important pieces of a critical incident stress program is pre-incident education. Could you elaborate? Being ready for an incident. So many places don't think it's going to happen to them. So they're not ready. So now, not only do we have the incident, but we're going in and we're trying to make organization out of chaos. People just aren't prepared for it, and they make decisions that probably aren't the best decisions, like immediately just put everybody on admin leave, which is the worst thing you can do. Now you're just removing that entire now you need support to have, system. Yeah, you need to, people need to be together. Yeah. And to understand what it might look like to have your checklist in place, but it goes further than that. And that's one of the things we worked on this week um, in our comprehensive fitness for wildland firefighters preseason module mm-hmm. for the crew level. And that's, if you're involved in a critical incident, here's some things to expect. First, here's, here, here's some things that you need immediate need in the first 24 to 48 hours, which is just information, knowing you're safe. But also... You might have a thing called SISM show up, and if it's done right, they're going to be peer supporters with a mental health professional, and you may have to talk to an investigator. And so we're going to share what some of those things look like so that our firefighters are prepared if something happened. When I, when I started out, there was nothing. bad things happened all the time. I mean, yeah. we had crashes where... We picked people up in buckets and and went to lunch, and nobody really gave us anything. 
And now one of the best things we can do as preventative is saying, if you're in fire for very long, at some point you will experience a critical incident. If that happens, and if it's done right, your immediate needs are going to be taken care of. You're going to be given some time to disengage operationally and reconnect with your family. Which is hugely important. People are in a better place to take advantage of our services after they've had a chance to disengage. There's um, biological reasons for that. And also, you may be part of an investigation. And depending on how the investigation goes, you may feel very defensive. It may create a lot of anxiety. I've had tons. Yeah. And we want to prepare you because that could happen. And for you, did anybody tell you? No. This could happen? No. (laughs) Did anybody tell you? uh, About preparing pre-incident? Yeah. No. And this, but this was, you know, back in its infancy of the program. So now it's developed. And would that make a difference to know that? Absolutely. There's going to be some people come in and you're going to feel. Well, the thing is, is that another critical, critical incident stress management session that I went through was my second year in fire or in fire. And, uh, it was really informal, which was, it was actually perfect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my boss at the time, I don't know if he went through any training or anything like that, but it was perfect. Some subsequent ones where I saw a more, um, traumatic event. It was, it was, it wasn't as good of quality, but then again, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. So I think it's important to your first and second year firefighters to, to prep them. Hey, this, this could potentially happen. We have a very high, uh, high risk job and there is potential for that. And this is what you need to expect. And if I had that before all these events happened, I think I would have been better prepared for it. I think you're exactly right. We're not, we're not working in the sock aisle at JC Penny. <laughs> the hell we are. <laughs> yeah, the, hell we are yeah. the better prepared we are. What I found is the better we prepare people and arm them with tools to help them, 80% of people won't need anything as far as crisis intervention mm-hmm. if we've prepared them for adversity, if we've built in resistance Absolutely. and resilience. And resilience is such an overused term. Let's all get together and be resilient. Okay. That's the whole push right now is, well, we're going to be resilient. What does and that mean, though? What does that boil down to? What that that means mean? being, able, being, being able to come back stronger than you were before. It means a lot of things. And that's what we've built into our comprehensive fitness training. We have a preseason and a postseason module. And we don't call it resilience. It's resilience. Yeah. But we purposely took the terms out because it's just so overused. It's so overused. I was just about to say, God, yeah. that, that, that word. Oh, it's just, it just is so overused. Around. It really is. Just like SISM. It's yeah, thrown it around is. and it has so many connotations and it's so misunderstood. But if we can prepare people just a tiny bit, oh, okay, all right, well, I remember back in the spring, they said this happened. And there's other things that you can do with pre-incident education. How about fill out your forms? Do you know how many times we see life insurance, 
TSP, our retirement go to spouses three times removed. Because or nobody, it never updated. Because nothing was ever updated. Oh, wow. And there's nothing you can do about it. No, it's a legal binding document. Yeah. Um, your emergency contact, con, you know, contact information. Preseason, things to do before you leave. You know, to lessen some anxiety on your family and on yourself. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to focus on that. And those are resilience tools. Absolutely. That if done well in the face of adversity, hopefully we won't need as much crisis intervention. Now, there are times when we know when something happens. We, we, we know what needs to happen. Um, there's a, a term called a debriefing, mm-hmm. and everybody thinks that that's the, the tool we use. Well, you got to go to the debrief. you got to go to the debriefing. We do that 40% of the time. There's so many other tools out there that we use for crisis intervention that are effective and appropriate. And it's important to take the time to learn what those look like, you know, if you're really interested in crisis intervention. So moving back to something you had mentioned during that, um, you mentioned postseason fitness as well. And you've been involved with an article with The Atlantic regarding postseason depression. It's almost like a seasonal depression. And I know that is for sure a thing because you go through the entire season with your best friends, people that you rely on for your life. And then you're, as a seasonal, at least, if you're not working a 26 and 0 job, you're pretty much dropped. You lose that sense of purpose. You lose that, that structure. You lose your peer support, essentially. What are you, what the postseason fit, uh, fitness that you mentioned earlier? We put a lot of work that? into postseason, and I'm glad that you asked me that. Because postseason, especially at the crew level, especially after a difficult season, mm-hmm. if you look at an XY axis, you lose your structure, your job, mm-hmm. you lose your support base, your crew. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you end up, if you end up in the lower left-hand section, that's where we see suicide, that's where we see depression, that's where we see anxiety. And it's really important to prepare people before they scatter to the wind for winter. And we're trying to help people build in plans to check on people. Hey, how you doing? What's your plan? What do you have going on? And for uh, crews that have had a critical incident during the season, we try to go and spend time with them. Yeah. There was a hotshot crew that had a fatality last year, and they did everything they could to get back on the board, continue to go on, but then they had another incident, and they just stood down. But they had six weeks left before everybody was laid off. Mm-hmm. So we did something unique, and it was bring a clinician to you. And so every Thursday, we sent a clinician in to prepare people for when they went off the board. And I just saw them a couple weeks ago, and they look good. They're ready to fight fire. And it was... The agency that did that was so amazing to make that investment, to make sure everybody was in a good place before they left. 
But there's a second piece to that, and that's the family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's basically the reintegration yeah, which in fire for six, eight months which, out of the year. For the families, reintegration happens every 14 days. Oh, yeah. And then you have the big one that happens at the end of the season. And so we're trying to do a lot of work with, you know, pre-season, such as, in my case, you know, I used to fight fire all the time. And now I'm the one that, it, it, I'm, I'm home. My husband works in fire. And one of the best things he did was hired a lawn service. That's when we were in Boise. Now we're in Vegas and have a pool. So we had hired a pool <laughs> service. But Must be nice. How's that tr- pool treating you? Yeah. Especially that video but, <laughs> but all the vehicles are made, you know, taken care of. His bills are set up on auto pay. Mm-hmm. And that makes things so much easier. We talk about that. And we make sure that, you know, big decisions. What are the big decisions we need to talk about? We need, you know, and we, we have a plan going into the fire season. We learned, he learned the hard way is, you know, don't call me up from an incident and ask me if I can tell, you know, I can transfer your alimony money to your ex-wife because you forgot to do it. That doesn't bode well for the next days off. Probably not. Put it probably that, sets you up for a bad Put that on auto pay. Days. Oh. Put that on <laughs> auto pay, thank you. Yeah. And so... There's the little things that as you go into the season, you know, can make a difference. One of the things that um, my mom did for me when my dad was going to fires all the time, we were kids, she'd get out the roadmap. We were in Wyoming, we're in our ranger station. He went to New Mexico and he'd call whenever he could from a payphone or whatever. And we had colored pencils and we could draw his route. Oh, really? To New Mexico. That's sweet. To the fires. Super endearing. And so we were part of his journey. Yeah. And then when he got home, he could tell us, well, we stayed here, we stayed there, because we'd outlined it on the map. Yeah. And he brought us some Navajo blankets, some rugs, and different things. But we felt like we were part of it. Yeah, you're involved. You're actively sure. involved. With it. And so yeah. we, we, we talk about it, you know, encouraging those types of things. And one of the things that is huge that I couldn't do so much of when I worked for the government, but I plan to now is to talk about the significant other, others, the spouses that are left behind. They're a wealth of information. Oh, yeah. I, for me, married to a hotshot superintendent, and, and, and now, you know, an IC that does what he does, I'd rather have him just go away for two weeks at the end of the season, go hunting, exactly where my decompress, <laughs> and then come home. Don't come straight home yeah. and complain that you saw a weed. Well, that weed is because of the lawn service you hired didn't pull it. <laughs> And, That's the you know, you don't type, have though. to drop 10 F-bombs at the dinner table and eat like a pig. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> so we, we talk about those things. Yeah. And, you know, my goal this, this year is to really work with the significant, significant others and the families to talk about what's important to you with reintegration. And then also with firefighters, and I know it from both sides, is you can't go 20 hours, sleep four, go 20 hours, sleep four, go 20 hours, sleep four. No, you cannot do that. And shut your mind off that fast that you can go to DMV and have a normal conversation with somebody who's in line. No, there's no way. There's no way. You're pretty much intoxicated. At Biologically, point. we're not capable of that. No, we're not designed to run that way. But that's what we do. Yeah. 
we do it more often than not. Yeah. We share information on sleep. I talked to, talk to you about that and how that really impacts decision-making, cognitive thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing we can really do about it because until there's a cultural shift, we're going to do what we do. And that's the thing is that D-type personality that you brought up earlier. That This is yeah. previous, before we started recording, but would you care to elaborate on the D-type personality? The D personality is something that I've been studying with my master's degree, and it certainly does not stereotype by any means um, everybody that fights fire. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people say, well, everybody that fights fire is type A. I call bullshit. Yeah. And we're all different. <laughs> we are all different. We're, we're all different. We, we can't, um, you know, we can't say one or the other, but I believe that we need to understand the, hi- the psychology of the culture and the mind of the fire- wildland firefighter. Because we're not combat soldiers. We're not structured firefighters. We do things that are absolutely insane oh, yeah. to the clinicians that we talk to. They can't grasp that this is what we do. And I, I, I believe that we're at a point where we need to reevaluate some cultural things. Um, yes. It's and, the elephant in the room, so yeah, to speak. Exactly. And I don't, I don't want to go there at, you know, at this time of the year whether it's, you know, differences in days off, you know, but I think there's some unique things that can be done to give people a better quality of life that are more humane. My son's an F-16 pilot. He goes and does whatever. badass. What, what, he goes and does whatever he does. But when he's done, he comes into a little city where there's an internet cafe mm-hmm. where he can Skype, which he doesn't do with his mother. But yeah, he, did you hear that? If he you're can, listening to this. Yeah, he can get he can get some Starbucks. Um, there's just it normalizes and makes you realize that you're still a human. And I'd love to see footage of a little city like that compared to one of our fire camps in the mud with the generators. Basically squalor. And no cell service. Mm-hmm. I think there's some things we can do to humanize it. So that you can Skype and see your, your daughter blow her birthday candles out. It's important. And, you know, I, the thing that I miss the most when I'm out on an assignment is my wife. Of course. And God bless her soul because before we were married, she put up with a season when I was an apprentice on an engine, a season of hot shotting, a season of hell attack. And now that I've moved back home to Reno, a season around here on the engines. Sure. Which is wild. And God bless her soul because she puts up with a lot of shit. And if I could contact her more when I'm not, when I have my downtime, I think our relationship would be stronger. Of course it would be. And it re- it reduces anxiety. When I don't hear from my husband, what's happened? What's happened? What's happened? Exactly. What's and happened? silence is the worst. Too. It is the worst. Or she worries her ass off. Or if you only have happened. three minutes or you get a busy signal, then you go into the mind wander, the what if game. And she's, and that'll keep you awake at horrible night. Horrible at that. Yeah. She, she plays the what if game. Oh yeah. Lot, which is understandable. She sure. doesn't know. She sure. doesn't know. And, 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 you know, there's just, there's, there's not a win to the what if game, but we do it as human beings. We even do it as firefighters. Sure. Yeah. And we just need to be able to have the opportunity, especially at people that are in spike, 
What's wrong with throwing up a cow? Spike's the best place to be. You're gonna get I the love spike. You're gonna get the best sleep. Yeah. You don't have to worry somebody's gonna back over you. You don't have to worry about a noisy ass generator. You're not gonna listen door. to a yeah. generator or shitter door. <laughs> shitter door slamming. At yeah. But wouldn't it be nice to at least call home? It would be nice. And that relieves so much anxiety. Oh yeah. And we have the technology to do that. We talk about costs on wildland fires. These are very small investments to take care of what we say are the most important resources in fire. That is the firefighter on the line. So it's human capital, basically. Let's demonstrate. Let's not say that we care about them. Let's demonstrate it by doing just that. How many times have you seen a helicopter at $10,000 an hour wash, wash, wash rocks? More times than I'd like to admit. And that investment could go to some things that are the human factor, mm -hmm. that make things better at home. Because we're all people. We love our job. We're dedicated to our job. But we see so much substance abuse. We, so, we see so many domestic problems. Suicide is huge. And, and, and I will say that suicide, from my experience and my research and working with a specialist, suicide doesn't necessarily come from being a firefighter. It comes from the issues, the personal part. The home life. The, the home life. Problems. A lot, much of it is biological. Mm hmm which can, which comes to life just from chronic stress. We talk about PTSD. PTSD is a term that is so overused. It PTSD, is. It's, it's thrown around a lot. Again, and it's not from just a single incident. Yes. A lot of it's from chronic stress. And a lot of chronic stress is being gone from home. Or on the flip side, having somebody gone from home. And all that shit adds up, too. I mean... It does. And so... Again, I really believe that there's things that we can do that require an organizational, a cultural shift at levels far above us and an insight that a crew doesn't run for 14 and two, seven rolls back to back. That's maybe, hard. Maybe you get some days off in between a couple that are your days off and a couple that are paid because in the seasonal nature we still have to make money to pay our bills well yeah you're only working for six months out of the year right. eight months if you're lucky sure. if you're working the 18 and, and sure so you have to have you know you have to continue that pace but what's wrong with a couple off days and a couple paid days to get the bills paid to get caught up do your timesheet, do everything before you turn around and go right back out what kind and maybe maybe in that time you could get a couple nights of quality sleep because when you come off after 14 days with resource order in hand. I've done that so many times. I, of where yeah. you're going two days from now. Is that a quality, is that quality R&R &R for you? No. no. It's, it's stressful. I mean, it's stressful. And I mean, yeah, is there some sort of part of me that loves it because I get to go do what I love? Go fight fire. Yeah, there's a part of me that loves that, but then there's also a bigger part of me that's looking back and like, fuck, I had concert tickets with my wife, or I had to go, I wanted to go see my parents. 
and the defining moment when I realized what my personal life meant to me is I was on a hotshot crew and I was heading back from R to, I was going to R&R. I took my R&R in Reno to see my now wife and on my way back. So I'm, I'm driving basically all night to get here and enjoy the most time possible with her on my way back. I get a phone call from my grandmother. I'm like, oh, it's whatever. No big deal. One phone call, right? Driving. Then I get a call from my parents, my aunt, my uncle, my grandmother again, my other uncle. All these phone calls. I'm like, shit, something's wrong. My grandfather was involved in a, a, in a plane crash. And I had the opportunity to see him that weekend. I just turned around, made some calls to my souf and said, I'm taking days off. And it, it sucks because, and I hate to be, as, as for the first episode that's going to go to air, I hate to be a real downer, but I just want to reiterate the fact that your home life and your family are the most important things in your life. This is just a job. I had that opportunity to see them. And I didn't get to. And it, then it was too late. So that was one of those defining moments in my career that I realized that, you know what? I'm going to take a personal day. The, fight, the fire is going to be there, whether I'm there or not. Every fire goes out. Every fire goes out. And I'm so glad that I've changed and shifted my, my thought process and my personality to realize the value in family, home life, loved ones, etc. That I've had such a better quality of life. I've just, the fire's going to be there. I'm glad you have too. Take that into consideration, guys. One of the things that we share in it, 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 whatever level of the comprehensive fitness training we're doing, and it's kind of my line, a lot of people's line is, there is no Hall of Fame. There isn't. This job is not your legacy. Your family is your legacy. Yeah. Who you are as a person is your legacy. And it's important to be careful because this job becomes our identity. It becomes our sense it, of belonging. It becomes a huge part of your, your life. It, becomes, it can define who you are. For the most part, it does for it, the majority of the people. It out does. There. It did for me. It did. It still does to me. So think about if you're separated from service because of an illness. Mm -hmm. What's your plan? Do you have one? What if you're separated from service because of an injury? What's your backup? And you know you're going to have to deal with OWCP, OWCP, which is going to put you over the edge. But what's your plan? Do you have something other than the job? that you can fall back on. Mm -hmm. And then when you get that letter, when you turn 57, get the hell out of here. <laughs> You're they, done. they don't even thank you. They do not even thank you for service. They just tell you, clear your shit out and don't come back in the building after the end of the month. Mm -hmm. Do you have a plan? And when we look at suicide, depression, anxiety, especially suicide, 
a lot of it comes from loss of identity and, you know, your sense of belonging. Yeah. Because we're human beings. So your sense of belonging has to be something other than the job. There's, got, there's so much out there besides the job. I was guilty of it. The job, I, I, I did 40. Shit, I'm still guilty of yeah, it. <laughs> I did 40 years. And the job always was first. Well, we get into, we, we fall into this vicious cycle of loyalty and, yeah. hi, Kimber. We've, that's my dog, Kimber. Hi, Kimber. <laughs> Golden Retriever. Yeah, we do, but. We get into this vicious cycle of where we're so dedicated and we're so loyal to this job. And I don't know, I, I, I understand where it comes from, but what's it really worth? So tell me, what's the cost? Exactly. What What's be, my personal cost? Yeah, of that? I mean, what be, what could be the cost? Relationships, family, being estranged from your family. I mean, for shit's sake, I, I disappear out of for six to eight months out of the year, and I just disappear off the map. Oh, he's gone fighting fire. He'll be back in six months or so. Then when I come back, it's like I have to relearn those processes of friendship and relationships and catching up with my family and it's it's hard what does your life look look like outside of fire well it's a hell of a lot better after that one incident that's for sure I so you have things that you do oh yeah oh yeah well we're, we're doing this right here that's very cool <laughs> and that's <laughs> important my hobbies because we yeah. never know well, that's the thing is like i i find the most satisfaction in giving back to the community and that's one of the reasons why i started this podcast is because I wanted to give back. We get, which is kind of like a self-answering question, I guess you like that, but we, we get so dedicated into helping others and helping each other that we just keep doing it out of well, some sort of natural progression of things, I guess. At least but, that's where I stand with my mentality. And that's great. That's a protective factor. Hmm. That's a protective factor. Is if you have a sense of giving, as long as you know you're, you're balancing it with your, your home life, but if you have a, a if you have a sense of giving back and a passion to do something, that's that is a truly a protective factor. Mm -hmm. Because whether it's your podcast, whether you're fighting a fire, whether it's your guitar that I see there, whether it's your beautiful Kimber, oh Kimber, you can give back to any of that. Oh yeah, and that's and that's the beauty of it. And that's my support structure. And you've got that. Yeah. The people that don't have that. They scare the hell out of me. And that's why whenever my seasonals come on or my old crew members contact me, I go out of my way to talk to those guys and girls. Because it took me a long time to realize that your support structure, a majority of it, is going to be each other. That's where SISM came from. If you look at the inventors of SISM, George Everly and Jeff Mitchell... One was a paramedic, one was a firefighter, and they'd get together after shift and have a couple beers and download. Mm -hmm. and Just they like we're doing right now. Right. Yeah. And they realized talking helped. It does. Talking back and forth helped. And so what they did is, and, 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 and you know, these guys are PhDs. They're certainly, you know, well-trained, and, you know, they've been my, you know, they're my forefathers. They're the people I've learned from. 
mentors in a way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And their courses. Um, you know, they founded the the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation that that we use now. But what they did was they just got together and talked back and forth as peers and formalized it. Which it, is huge. And it works. It's huge. Talking helps. It does. Yeah. And reaching out. That's the thing, too. It's like bringing it back to that personality type. We have, mm-hmm. I mean, a firefighter has an archetype. We're hard-headed. We don't like to talk about our problems. We just bury them down and just... Well, that's one of the secondary dangers of wildland fire. Exactly. The primary danger is inherent to the job, fighting fire. Yeah, it's the second potentially lethal. (laughs) The the secondary danger is not asking for help, no matter how bad it gets. Yeah, and I think it's very important. Lack of trust um, to the outside culture, and we understand that. We get super xenophobic. We do, but... We do. I was talking to a mental health professional that I've worked with for a long time, and I love him. And I told him, I'm so cynical. I can't stand myself. That's a defense mechanism in itself, though. I, I think that's, I think it is. I don't know if that's oh, a fact or bullshit. Yeah. But. And I said, I'm to the point that if anybody that I don't know says something or I see something, I'm immediately cynical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm talking to myself, you know, in my head going, yeah, whatever. Get <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You were never a hot shot. And he said, it's okay to be that cynical. He said, that's what keeps you guys alive is because you don't immediately trust. You size it up first. Yeah. And then you decide whether you want to trust it or not. He said, cynical is another protective factor. And he said, you're a little over the top, but it's okay. <laughs> he, said, over the top. he said, go with it because it's a protective factor. Yeah. And it's really important to recognize your protective factors especially when people are feeling suicidal is what are your protective factors? And that's the thing. And identify, know them, identify them. And that's one thing that it's, I've lost friends to friends in fire to suicide. And I just, I just wish that I could have like talked to them. I just wish I could. Like, I wish that I knew I I didn't even know like some of this. I, no, no, they weren't presenting the way right. you'd think someone that was potentially sometimes, suicide. Sometimes they don't. Suicide, yeah. Sometimes they don't. And at least that's an well, elephant in the room that by and large, little by little, we're able to say within our agencies. Mm-hmm. I've been asked to leave staff meetings. I've been told to take things out of notes. I've been told to Redact information. Because they said they died by suicide. Yeah. And now, when it happened, uh, we've had system requests where, okay, you can come <clears throat> in, but you can't talk about how they died. Well, we can't do that because that's not part of the standard of care. It compromises our mental health professional. And suicide intervention is a wonderful opportunity to do suicide prevention. And there are certain things with suicide that we need to address that's different than any other intervention that we can do. Yeah, that's written into the protocols, basically, for you guys. And at least it's to the point now that people aren't looking at it like, 
well, I don't want them to have anything because I considered, I think it was a sin. Um, or um, I don't want to talk about it. You have to talk about it. You got to get that shit off your chest. You do, but we all have our own hurts. Yeah. And I guarantee that most of those people probably had a suicide somewhere in their past that was unresolved. And that's where I go back to talking helps. Mm -hmm. And the more we talk about it and reduce stigma, I believe we're making progress. Absolutely. And, it, and it's those are the things that the elephant in the room that has to be talked about. I hope we're making progress, which is great. But we I, are. I think it needs to be more aggressive. I wish it was more aggressive. Just mental health in general. Right. I mean, it's... It's finally being recognized because when even, you know, 11 years ago when I started, sure, it wasn't really there. Look where we are now. Look where we are now. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the progress. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to let you guys know that are listening that if you're having problems, you're not alone. And there are things out there and it's okay to talk about things. And a lot of the things are uh, biological. It's something that's going on in your body. Mm -hmm. Things that you might not recognize. And if you think about it, and you put a sheet of paper over your face, and you can't see beyond that sheet of paper, reach out. Because there are people that can pull that sheet of paper down and help you to recognize that there is a different option, no matter how bad it hurts. No matter how bad it hurts, there are people that can help to find a different way out and that you don't have to be alone. There's people who do care and there's people who do get it. And I'm glad this, that finally has made progress to the point that we have now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And understand that a lot of it, mental health issues are biological. I'm not pushing pills by any means, but sometimes the brain needs a little help with serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, whatever it is, yeah. too much cortisol. There's medications that can balance that, and with some therapy, you can get to a whole lot better place. We need that. Some people, I mean, yeah, some people need that. And I, I, Most mental illnesses are a biological issue it's no different than if you blow your knee out you're gonna need surgery or you hurt your back you possibly need surgery or you're diabetic you might need some insulin it's all part of who we are and it can make a difference the most important thing is what we see in another one of the like I said one of the secondary dangers of firefighting is not asking for help, no matter how bad it gets. Ask for help. It does make a difference. And we do have referrals to good clinicians who get it and understand the culture. Um, nobody has to be alone. And those are powerful words of advice. No one has to be alone. No. Sometimes the people that need help the most are standing right beside you. Learn how to recognize signs of distress in yourself 
and in your coworkers, because nobody has to be alone. You'll know when someone, you'll just, I don't know, have you ever like uh, been sitting next to somebody and they just seem off? They seem off in a bad way. They're not just off like distant thinking, just zoning out or time traveling yeah. in the back of a buggy. They're having, you'll know. You just get that gut feeling. That's that's at least how I recognize it. I mean, it, is there any other signs that you would? Sure. Sometimes you don't know. Um, did suddenly they sell their house and decide to move into an apartment? Are they giving things away that they really liked? Did they have a car that they drove for 20 years and now they show up in a brand new 2019 truck, which is totally out of character for them? The person that's never late for work, all, all of a sudden. sudden, they're showing up late. The person who's always, you know, looks nice is disheveled. Or the person who always is disheveled certainly looks nice. The person who's always pretty laid back is all of a sudden angry, really down on things. Hmm. Look for those differences because just the subtle differences. And the best thing you can do is say, hey, everything all right? What's going on? And sometimes that'll make the most difference. Do you want to just say, hey, let's go for a walk and have a cup of coffee and talk. What's up? And that can make a huge difference. That has a huge, yeah, I mean, it could potentially be life-altering. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And speak up, reach out. Take care of each other. Take care of each other. That's what it's about. Because we're our own support base. We're our own bonds. And we're a very niche culture to where, you know, we rely on each other so much. But when it comes to the end of the season, you guys disband your crews for the season. Keep that relationship going with each other. Put together a phone call. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Hey, you know, what does your day look like? Let's go get beers. When are you going to slack off on PT and then when are you going to start again? <laughs> you know, exactly. After Thanksgiving, put down the fork. The pack test is just around the corner. You know, go for a run. And that's another thing, too, is physical fitness. That's a huge deal. That's it's a huge, huge thing. Phys so. Physical fitness is so powerful, especially when it comes to, like, cortisol, endorphins, and just the feeling of euphoria. Is that you're physically fit. It's one of the single best things you can do for mental health. And that's where we, with comprehensive fitness, we want mental and physical fitness to be equal. We want the mental workout to look just like the physical workout so that they're in sync and they're in balance together because one needs the other. Oh, they're codependent. Those two Absolutely. systems are very codependent. Absolutely. Like it. If I don't work out in the winter, I lose my shit. Because now I start thinking about all the other crap that's going on in my right? life. I can't, I don't know if it's like a carpet, carpet blah, 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 compartmentalizing mm -hmm. thing that I do, or if it's just endorphins that are released. It just makes everything better. It makes everything better. 
And it's like a natural morphine that's built into your body. Mm-hmm. And there's no drug. It's just you. That can replace that. I mean, it really is euphoric. I really struggled when I lived in Boise. Uh, I had to suffer through Boise for three years. Nothing against the community or the town. Hey, I love that town. It just was <laughs> not for me. Um, and now that I'm back in Nevada, back in the great state, um, I swim every morning. I swim in the morning and I swim at night. And it's been such a huge difference to be in warm. For me, I, I like warm weather. But I really slacked off and didn't work out, didn't do anything. And I, it took a toll. And now every morning I swim and every night I swim before I go to bed. And it's just, it, like I said, it's euphoric. It feels yeah. so good. It does. And that's the thing, too, is like when we're on our off season, if you get picked up on a job, make sure that you take the extra. If you get an overnight job, like working for a construction company or whatever you do in the off season, I know that we fall into this pattern to where, I mean, I fell into it myself last winter where I didn't have time to work out and it just was soul crushing to my psyche. Right. Find the time, make the time. Just like with you in the swimming, that's like, that's your flow state. That's your, the, your Zen moment. It's huge. It's huge. You have to have it. And it's no different than any, and if you don't have the time to work out, consider two minutes of mindfulness um, consider tactical breathing. The military. Could you explain tactical breathing? The like milita- combat breathing or? Combat yes. breathing. Yeah. Tactical breathing. Same thing. Mm-hmm. The military is dumping millions of dollars into the concept and it works. And they do a lot of work with it with their snipers. And it can reduce your blood pressure, um, you know, lower your heartbeat, and bring a sense of calm within you know, just a minute or two. And there's apps that you can get for your phone. I have a tactical breathing app on my phone. Um, We go through it in comprehensive um, fitness for wildland fire. But basically, it's a breathing sequence that you go through that sharpens your mind, helps you to, you know, concentrate, Mm -hmm. lowers your blood pressure, and helps you, basically, it helps cognitive thinking. And reduces stress so that you're not running on emotion, but you're running more on cognitive thinking. And it's very effective. It takes practice. It does. It takes practice. Mindfulness. Takes even more. (laughs) It takes even more practice. But it works. It does. It works. It does. It works. There's an app called Tactical Breather. Just Uh, check that out, guys. Yeah. Tactical Breather, you can download it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty utilitarian, but it works. And if you're more into the mindfulness side of it, that's okay too. Um, and I always, I never really thought, you know, because I like to drink beer and hang out and do things just to chill, but I, <laughs> I never, I never thought that breathing could make such a difference in reducing anxiety and stress. It does. So when you're flying home after a bad day, well, make an example of my husband yesterday. We asked him to come up to do an interview at our one of our classes, and he came in like the guns of Navarone and just acted like a total jackass. <laughs> Bring and it we, in, bud. <laughs> yeah. 
And we told him, if you would have sat in your truck, because he was stressed out about something that happened at work. He was pissed about something. He was furious. If you would have sat your ass in your truck for five minutes and done some breathing and refocused and lowered your blood pressure and your heart rate, do you think your entry would have been different? Bet you it would have been. Absolutely. And whether you're going home after a hard day or you're going to work after a fight with at home or with whoever, if you're feeling that way, two minutes, three minutes of breathing to sharpen things and refocus cognitive reframing of where you're at can make the difference on how you start or end your day. And the beauty of it is you can do it in a buggy. Oh, yeah. You can do it at lunch. You can do it before you go to sleep at night. And, you know, when I first started learning about it, I was like, yeah, yeah, right. It works. Oh, no, I know it it's works. Huge. I've tried it a couple of times. And actually, a lot of very uh, prominent people like uh, Joe Rogan talks about this. I love Joe. I love Joe. He's such a good podcaster. Uh, Jocko. Jocko Wilmots. Yep. I read a lot of his books. He write, He talks about combat breathing mm -hmm. or tactical breathing. Same thing. Same thing. Um, a lot of, uh, I think even Nathan Thick, he talks about it in uh, One Bullet Away. And mm -hmm. if you guys, you guys will read that book eventually in your fire career. It's part of your yeah. uh, L380 class. That or the endurance pick one. <laughs> well, you think about what, you know, the military, a lot of tactical or combat breathing they do for their snipers. Mm -hmm. And it centers, centers them. It does. Yeah. It centers and it grounds you. And it's, I hate making that comparison that firefighting is like the military because it's not, but, but it's still the same level of engagement. It's still the same level of engagement. You're not dodging bullets per se, but you're in a very high risk environment. And when it boils down to it, we are tactical athletes. And maybe you're not dodging bullets. In some ways you are if you're in a snag patch. Yeah, no or shit, wherever, right? You know, for sure. But the level engagement <laughs> and the tension oh, yeah. can be very much the same. And so, especially with the veterans we hire and the BLMs. They're doing work they're doing some the, work with the vets oh the blm veteran crews i am so honored to be working with them now and while i was with blm mm -hmm. i am i i can't i don't have I, there's i i am so grateful they bring a lot of tools and a lot of skills and oh, yeah. they will tell you and and and, and what they'll tell you is they like the level of engagement because it's familiar to them. Very, yeah. very much so. And shout out to those guys. See what we got. Close to here, we got Lakeview. We got Lakeview has it. They have a veterans crew now. Yeah, I think they're a hotshot crew now. They're hot. Yeah, they just we got, got Folsom Lake. One. Yeah. We have Folsom Ian Lake. the Boys at uh, yeah. Vegas. Vegas Valley. Shout out to uh, we old got, e there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah. Yeah. We got a ton of them, man. They're popping Billings. up more. Billings now? Yeah, we have eight. Eight of them. Yeah, Sierra Vesta. Damn. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they get it on. Oh, yeah. And it's been my honor, like I said, to work with them. 
Shout out to the vets. Thank you for your service, guys. Shout out to all the vets, whether you're on a vet crew or you're just a vet. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Share your story. Yeah. If you guys, I'm going to get some vets on here. Specifically some of the guys from the vet crews. Oh, I'll give you a couple names. Oh, yeah. Let's get them yeah. on here. That'd be cool. Well, I got to tell you, some of our best peer supporters in the SISM program are our veterans. No shit. Yeah. We put through, I think, 10 of them in the last class in Vegas last fall. Mm-hmm. And then we used many of them uh, for the campfire. That was because some shit. The it campfire. was. Yeah. It was, but. The entire community just gone. But they recognized human suffering at catastrophic levels and went and stepped up and did a great job. So, since we're in the beginning of the season, what kind of advice do you have for our guys, especially our new guys and girls that are starting this season? Say it's their rookie year or their second or third or whatever. I guess this applies to all levels. What advice do you have for them? My advice is to stay grounded And be mindful of your identity. Whether, how do you define yourself after a shift? After a fire assignment? After two or three fire assignments? And after a season? Stay grounded. And stay in tune with yourself on how you define yourself. Be mindful of what you're doing, but most of all, look out for one another, be kind to one another, and live the dream. You've got the best job that there ever is. Absolutely. And journal it. I wish that through the 40 years I had, I would have kept a journal of when we were on the road and written it down. All the cool shit, all the funny shit, all of everything. To look back on that now, and there's, there are people that did it. And what a gift. And what a gift you can give back to your family. So that would be my advice. That would be cool. Just like present, I bet my, I bet my family would like that. Like, here you go. Bam. Yeah. Book of my entire careers <laughs> yeah escapades if you will <laughs> but eat healthy work out make sure you know your identity stay in touch with your family and write journals we can all read years later that'd be my advice hell yeah and they don't have to be photographic either because you need to keep your job <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Social media, no. <laughs> oh man, it, it's so funny that you mentioned the social media thing because I'd always get yelled at, or I get my ass chewed. I'm not gonna lie, I get my ass chewed for taking photos on, on fires. But now it's come to the point where I think that there's gonna be an integration with social media, photography, and the recruitment tools that that possesses. 
and just public information. So now my photos go through my boss, my other, my boss's boss, and all the way up the chain. And now the PIO is using my, my, basically my Instagram. <laughs> I like <laughs> I like it for the photos for my websites and the things that I do and for training. Yeah. But. Just got to be careful. That's tell your families that if they read something on social media. It might be a 180 from what's going on. Yep. And if something happens, call your families. Don't post about it. Tell them you're okay. Yeah. And don't post anything about it. Yeah. There's a fine line with social media and fire. So make sure you're very aware of what you're doing if you decide to go there. I know there's some crews out there that utilize it as, like I said, like recruitment tools or PIO information. Sure, but it's in good taste. It's in good taste. But so. there's also crews that's protocol, you know, that you don't do it. In SISM, we never do it. No, you should never do it. It can be so hurtful. Yeah. So With be that, aware of what you guys are posting. Yep. Be respectful of what you're posting. Other than that, fire season... 2019. It's here. Have a good one. <laughs> I think that's the tie-in point. So, Nelda, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, before we uh, wrap this up, is there any uh, anybody you'd like to give a shout-out to, like a mentor, uh, a hero, anything like that? A cheers to someone? Sure. Um... I'd like to thank Stan Stewart, who's no longer with us, Soup of Los, pa Los Padres Hotshots, for all the dedication and everything he gave to be a peer supporter and a, and a fireman. Um, I'd like to thank the interagency hotshot community for all your everything you've given, um, and certainly the dispatch coordination system for making things happen. We couldn't do it without you. And for every firefighter that's out there, um, certainly for the ones that I learned from 30, 40 years ago, um, I'm glad that what you instilled in me, I still carry forward. Thank you. Now, uh, where can we find you on socials? Do you have a social media presence with uh, anything? Or? We're on Facebook okay. at Critical Incident Concepts. And um, website is just coming online at criticalincidentconcepts.org. Awesome. Nelda, cheers. And thank you very much. Episode one. It was my pleasure. It's in the books. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Have a good season, everybody. All right, guys, there you go. Episode one in the books, Nelda St. Clair. Nelda, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your professional insight and your story and your experiences. 
I also want to say thank you for everything that you've done for the agencies and us in the field as far as mental health and the uh, SISM programs. Wish you nothing but the best of luck with your new company, too. Hope you enjoy your retirement. Guys, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you guys follow us on our socials. And, uh, yeah, spread the word, guys. We're live. Episode one in the books. Thanks for tuning in, guys. See you next time.